The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning, brothers and sisters. You can make your way back to your seat. It's good to be with you. If you have your Bible, please open to Galatians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one of the ones on the seat next to you. That's our gift to you to keep. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4 and begin reading from verse 21. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the larger numbers on the page are the chapter numbers and the smaller numbers of the verse. We're going to begin in chapter 4 verse 21 of the book of Galatians. Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And so, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word the power that it communicates to us for salvation and life and godliness. We pray, God, now for your help and aid by your Spirit, that our minds and hearts would be illuminated and opened to receive the truth of your Word, to be led in obedience to the Gospel and walk in faithfulness and in light of the truth we hear and see this morning. We pray for those who are not here because of sickness. We pray, God, that you would comfort and encourage them, that you would help their bodies heal. For parents who are caring for young ones, that they would be patient and enduring and preserving in all things. We pray, God, for those who are not here because their work or a family has required them to be elsewhere. We pray even now, God, for Jake and Amy as he preaches at Redeemer Church, a sister church in King George, that his words would be indeed yours and that he would edify through his preaching the body of believers gathered there this morning. Lord, we pray for those who are gathered, not gathered with us because of sin or neglect, Pray, God, that you would confront them in that sin and by your grace lead them into restoration to both you and the church. 
We pray, God, for any here who may not know you savingly through Christ, that you would work powerfully through this morning's word and the spirit that you have given to each believer and now offer freely to all those who hear this word, that they would be regenerated in their heart, renewed in their mind, and given new life in Christ. We give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin at the outset by saying if you have any questions during this morning's service, please write them down. Uh, if there is some time towards the end, I'm actually going to open it up to a quick Q&A. Luckily for me, uh, John and J um, uh, Josh are here. Jake's not. Uh, but these two brothers are often uh, a big help to me in my own study of God's Word. So if I can't answer your question, they might be able to. And if we can't answer your question, uh, then you'll just have to wait next week for Jake. Okay, that's the goal. Uh, but please, if you do have questions and I don't answer them along the way, write them down and Lord willing, we'll be able to take a few um, towards the end. Now, if you've grown up in the church at all uh, or been around for a while or maybe you've had, had some kids in some sort of BB, BBS or Backyard Bible Club or something, you may be familiar with the children's song, Father Abraham. Is anyone familiar with this? Who wants to sing it? Okay, I won't make you. But it goes something like this. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all... Wow. This right side is really holy. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. They, they knew it. Well, it turns out that um, that is not necessarily a great song to teach children, although I think charitably interpreted, we can use it. Uh, but identifying with one particular side of Abraham's family tree is not... A recommended idea. As you saw from the text, Abraham, in fact, had two sons. He had many sons, and of course, through faith, as Paul has been laboring to show us, those united to Christ are indeed children of Abraham, children of the promise, yes and amen. But there's another side of Abraham's family tree which we don't want our children to identify with, namely his natural seed or those who are sons of Hagar, who gave birth to Ishmael. Now, if you're not familiar with the story with Sarah and Hagar uh, and Abraham and that whole thing, I want to encourage you to go back later today and read from Genesis 12 through really Genesis 21, but specifically there in Genesis 16 and 17, you'll recall that Abraham was given a promise by God that he would bear a son, him and Sarah. Now, Sarah at this point was barren, and they were very old, and yet they believed God's promise that God would indeed give Abraham a son. And we saw in Genesis 15 that that belief, that faith in God's promise was counted to Abraham as righteous. Righteousness, Paul says, comes through faith, not by work. So Abraham believed God, his promises to do what he said he would do, and it was counted him as righteousness. And yet God's promise didn't take effect immediately, and it took such a long time that Abraham and Sarah hatched a plan. God must indeed want us to have this son of promise by our own means. And because Sarah was barren and infertile, couldn't conceive, obviously it must be that some other woman needed to be the mother of the son that would come. And so she said, here is Hagar, my maidservant. You should have a son with her. And he did. And that's gross, but it wasn't as gross back then as it was to us, our modern sensibilities now. Although I should be clear, God did not and does not condone it. But that woman, Hagar, bared, born a son, Ishmael, but there was still contention between the promise and the fulfillment of that promise. 
Namely, it was clear immediately that Ishmael was not the promised son, and that God rebuked Abraham and Sarah for trying to circumvent God's promise through their own means and their own strength. We know that ultimately Hagar would curse Sarah. They would be sent out from among them, that because she was a slave and her son was a slave, they would actually have no claim to the promise and the covenant reality that God had made. Well, contrast chapter 16 of Genesis with chapter 17, where indeed Sarah does conceive and does give birth to Isaac. And Isaac is indeed that promised son. And yet we want to teach our children that the side of the family tree that Hagar represents is one here that Paul picks up and that there is, a, there is a confrontation within the bloodline of Abraham that the opponents against Paul in Galatia are trying to teach and make known in the church. They essentially said, hey, Abraham was righteous and he was given this covenant promise and the law then was given to his people and therefore to continue in the line of promise to be the hereditary offspring of Abraham you need to follow as well in the line of the law and to this Paul says need I remind you that the son of promise Isaac is not to be confused with the son of the flesh really of sin Ishmael the idea behind what Paul's describing here as an allegory is that a works-based or works-righteousness-based, flesh-based religion is ultimately slavery. We were once, of course, under that slavery, all of us, both Jew and Gentile. Whether we had the law or not, we were under the slavery of our sin. But the whole contention of Paul's letter is that through the gospel and by faith in Christ, we are freed from that bondage, that slavery to sin by being united to him through the Spirit in faith. And so what we have here at the end of chapter 4 is Paul's sort of final and most decisive point in his argument really against the law. He's arguing that not that we should throw away the law, but to use the law rightly means that we set it aside for the particular purposes that are realized and fulfilled in the new covenant that is in Christ. Just look what he says there in the beginning of the passage in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He says, in other words, you should hear what the law has to say. That's actually the, the words in the Greek that are there. Hear what the law has to say. If you were paying attention, then you would know that the law bears out everything he had been saying. The law actually teaches promise over flesh, spirit over law. In fact, the law, if you read it correctly, Genesis, Abraham's account, the Exodus, the law itself, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the account of Israel's history up until this point actually leads you and wants you to come to the same conclusion Paul has been laboring to show the Galatian churches. Namely, that faith is apart from the law. It is a gift of God, and our salvation or our justification is not based on our work. So this is what he wants us to hear. Listen to the law. Now, many of you are fans of music, and you like to listen to the music, but you don't actually listen to the words of the music. Have you ever been guilty of this? I like the music. I like the beat. It's got a good rhythm, 
and then you just, for one moment, happen to tune in to what the lyrics are saying, and you're like, no, I should, I should turn that off. We do this all the time with our children. It seems like a nice little happy song that's going on, and then as a parent, we catch something that we would never teach our children, and we say, you cannot listen to this ever again. Dare I say that happens to much more of our popular music than probably you'd like to believe. The truth is we need to listen to what the law has to say. We should read the law. It's included in the canon of God's word to us. And we should know with Paul that the law has something to teach us if we have ears and eyes to hear and see. So my question for you, just out of this first verse here, is that do you listen to the teaching of God's word? Or are you doing the talking? When you come to approach God's word in the morning or on Sundays, or whenever you take the Bible in hand or in ear, are you the one doing the talking or are you letting the word speak? Who has the authority to teach you the truth? Or do you take and bring the truth to your reading of the law and impose upon your own worldview, your own previous conceptions about what must be true or right or good? We're guilty of this more than we think we are. That if we come to the Bible and we hear it, we say, yes, that already comports with my reality, therefore I accept it as true. The Bible teaches this. But often, if we're honest, we see that the Bible confronts us and our misconceptions of what might be right or true or good. And though we may have some faint idea of that direction, the source of truth comes to us from the Word of God, not from ourselves to the Word and then confirmed to us back again. We are not to read the Bible as an echo chamber of our own beliefs. We are to submit ourselves to God's Word as the source of all wisdom and truth. This is exactly what the opponents in Galatian churches were not doing. They were taking the law and using it to their own ends. They already had the outcome of what they believed the law taught and said, therefore you must be circumcised. But Paul says, if you really wanted to obey the law, you would do actually what it says. If you desire to be under the law, do you not then listen to the words of the law? Do you hear them at all? It's as if he's saying, no, you come to the reading of God's word with your ears stopped up and your eyes diverted. You don't listen. You don't read. You don't truly seek out truth, but you import your own to confirm your own decisions and conclusions. How often do we do this? Do you listen to God's word or are you too busy being the one who's talking to hear what he has to say? Indeed, the first proto-deacon in the book of Acts, chapter 6 and 7, Stephen, says this very same thing to the Jews that would then stone him. He calls them a stiff-necked people who had resisted the Holy Spirit. He gives this beautiful picture of, the, of a biblical theology of how God had been working throughout history delivering his word and his prophets and his revelation to his people to teach them the truth. And they have resisted the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. Though they had the law, though they were teachers of the law, though they could read it, memorize it, recite it, they were the greatest biblical scholars of their day and they didn't know a thing about it, Stephen said. And for that, he was killed. How much more dangerous is that within our own churches when we have been privileged to hold copies of Bibles in our hands. Some of us have multiple versions of the Bible on our shelves. We have it at the tap of a finger. We even dare to memorize parts of the scripture, and yet we may fail to truly understand what it has to say. 
Now, it doesn't mean that it's easy. You listen and everything becomes plain to you. Knowing and studying the Bible takes real work. It takes learning how to read the Bible in particular ways, their genres. It takes learning the categories to think through the theological concepts that help us make sense of what Paul or Moses or Peter might be teaching us. But the work is worth it to get to the truth in the Word itself. Friends, listen to the law. The law as it's taught to you by the Spirit, as you read it in your devotions, as it's preached on Sundays or shared in community groups, or as you're encouraged by a friend. Let the Word do the speaking and you do the listening. Do you listen to God's Word or are you the one doing the talking? Well, then Paul then goes on to say that the law actually teaches us something particular about the law itself. He goes to history in verse 22 and 23, and he says that it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, one by the free woman. That's Hagar and Sarah. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free was born according to the promise. He's speaking, of course, about Sarah and Hagar. He's already brought up Abraham. In fact, in Galatians, it's mentioned. he's mentioned eight times. This is a central figure in his argument against the law as a source of justification. And so this is really one of the last moments he's bringing up Abraham to sort of put a pin in the center of the bullseye for what the argument truly means. So he brings up the history of Abraham with Sarah and Hagar. And he says that the law is going to lead you to the same conclusion that I've been teaching all along. So he says that these passages in Genesis, notice the word, should be understood allegorically. So what he says there in verse 24. This may be interpreted allegorically. Now, I'm not a biblical scholar or a Greek scholar. I don't know why the ESV puts in here, this may be translated allegorically. The may is not there. He's saying, I'm, I'm teaching you this as an allegory. So it's not as it may be, it may not be, whatever you want to do, you can interpret it the way you want. No, he says, no, this is allegorizing. This is exactly how I'm reading and how you should read the passage in question. This should be understood allegorically. Now, what does that mean? Not many of us come into uh, uh, and engagement with allegories. Maybe the most famous among Christians would be John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress with characters like Christian and trustworthy and peace and places like the Slough of Despond and the Hill of Discouragement. And those are very easy to see that in an allegory, there are things that represent greater and deeper spiritual truths. Right? Normally that means they stand in for or represent something else. But Paul is here contending that the law is actually really teaching this. So I don't want us to come to the conclusion that Paul is just borrowing the story of Isaac and Ishmael in order to make an unrelated theological point. It's not this. He's not borrowing the story and saying, now, if we read it one way, we can kind of see what we're saying. Remember that his argument is the law teaches. If you read it, it's really teaching this. So he's doing something much more insightful than just borrowing a story to make another point. He's looking at the course of events that unfolds between Abram and Sarai, between these two women, as well as everything that would come up after that, including the giving of the law in Exodus 19 and Sinai. And he sees, in the reading of the scripture that way, a very clear and very real and present thread that connects all of these things together. Now, I think for sure he's reading this with spiritual eyes. He's being helped and aided by God in his reading interpretation. But there is nonetheless a very real and present thread that connects these stories and these events together. So Paul's allegorizing here 
is something I would submit more akin to a kind of typology or intertextuality. And those are just really fancy words. I know John's telling me right now, define that, and I'm not going to, but I'm just going to tell you that those are fancy words for how Scripture can ultimately be woven together. We can read Scripture by typologies and intertextualities as well as by allegory, and it's just a way of helping us understand how the parts of the Bible come together. Parts spanning over thousands of years in their narrative elements actually are connected together beautifully like a tapestry or a puzzle that's perfectly complete. And so when Paul's really using the word allegory, he's meaning something much more than our simple, this means that and that means this. But the Bible is actually weaving together a story which if you follow the thread is connected beautifully in a way that only God can. So for a moment, I just want us to understand, if you take anything away from this morning, if I've confused you, I'm sorry, I've not done my job well, but if you can take anything away this morning, know that the Bible is God's inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God, and it contains more complexity than we could ever understand, and yet that complexity is so woven together that you and I and even our children can understand it and we can teach it. That it's, it's deep enough for the greatest of biblical scholars to wade in and to exercise their mental energy in, and it's also shallow enough for our children to learn, to memorize, and to believe the great truth of the Bible. This is because it's God's Word. You and I, and the brightest minds of our, of our humanity, could never come up with something so beautifully woven together and intricate and complex and simple as the Bible is. So just wonder at a moment for what the law and the Bible really is for us. God's own revelation to us for our life and our godliness. And it's so much more than that. But Paul says to read it well means you look at this, this passage in Genesis and you see very clearly that if you take it as an allegory, an allegory, if you take it as something that God has been working and connecting the dots all along the way, you'll actually see that the points that I've been making about justification and salvation and faith and the law, all of them add up to the same thing. And so the allegory is fairly straightforward. There's a clear correlation, he says, between these two women, Sarah and Hagar, and the two covenants. That would be the Mosaic covenant, given at Sinai, which came with the law, and the Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring there in Genesis 15. That comes with the promise. So notice what he says. In verse 24, this may interpret, be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. And the other he mentions will be Sarah, verse 26. The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And so they're comparing these two women and comparing the two covenants they represent because in the Bible, as you read it right, all these dots are connected. He begins first with Hagar, there in verse 24, the second part of verse 24 and 25. And she says that, that this woman is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, the main question here for us to ask is, what does Hagar have to do with Sinai, or Jerusalem for that matter? What does that whole story about Hagar and Ishmael have to do with anything that Jerusalem ultimately becomes and Sinai ultimately becomes? Why is that here? Well, the answer According to Paul's reading of the narrative, as he reads it allegorically, or if you'd like, typologically, or with intertextuality, it's that the, the thread between all of these events is slavery. 
right? Hagar was a slave. She wasn't Abraham's wife, but she was a slave. And therefore, her son that she has with Abraham was a slave. Even though she was Abraham's son, she was a slave's son. He was a slave's son. And so Ishmael was born a slave and therefore not a member, a covenant member of Abraham's family. In fact, you may recall that before the Hagar incident, Abraham tried to give off his possessions to his only male slave that he had. And God said, no, no slave can inherit the promise. I will give you a son. And so they should have known better, of course, but having not listened to the Lord, they went ahead and circumvented the promise. So Abraham's attempt to bring about the Lord's promise by his own means, we read, results in disaster. Hagar and Ishmael become cursed by God because Hagar curses Sarah. And remember the promise that was given to Abraham, those who curse you, I will curse. And so they're forced to wander, though they have some protection afforded to them by God, to wander in the wilderness. And so this cursing and this wandering, it's not going to be just tied to Israel's own future. Notice that Israel too will wander in the wilderness as Hagar is cast out and wanders in the wilderness. But it's connected not just to Israel's own future, to be cast out of Egypt, to wander in the desert, but also to the past, to Cain who murdered his brother Abel, to his cursing, to his having been cast out, to wander on his own. Even further back than that, to the garden, where Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden because of their sins, and they were cursed because of their transgressions, them and creation and the serpent. And so there's cursing and wandering and slavery now happening because of the failure to rest and believe on God's promise, which comes with blessing. Thus it is no wonder then how one can naturally come to see the whole affair at Mount Sinai later in Exodus 19, when Israel is cast out, those are the same words used in that event, cast out of Egypt over the Red Sea to the mountain where they meet with God and gives to Moses the law for his people where the covenant is made. It's no wonder then that as you read the narrative, you come to Mount Sinai and you see it just as another act in this tragic play of those who ultimately oppose God's promises and purposes. It's the same in the garden. It was the same with Cain and Abel. It was the same with Hagar and Abraham. It's the same with Israel. You see the thread that's woven throughout the whole Bible that's getting there? This isn't just an example to shine a light on something else, but it's a very real present reality in the text that is taught by the law. In the very beginning, when God created a perfect creation with man who is righteous and good, but rebelled against God's lordship, transgressed his commands, and sin entered the world, they were expelled from the garden, they were cursed, and that curse followed them down into their sons who murdered their brother, and were cast out, and they were cursed, and their sons would wander, and they would deal with the curse all the way to Abraham, and they would deal with the curse because they tried to out outskirt God's purposes, and therefore there was more cursing, more wandering, more casting out. This isn't just a theme, but this is a pattern within Scripture that the law teaches us. And so we go back to what Paul says. Do you not listen to the law? It's there, read it, he says. And so he points to this as a clear example of what's happening. And so no wonder we see this as another act in the tragic play of those who oppose God's promises and purposes. So by the time we get to the law in Exodus in Mount Sinai, Paul is already ready to prove, as he's done already, to show how the law 
enslaves those who are under it. If you're under the law, you are a slave to the law. You are trapped until faith comes. You're a slave because it provides no freedom. There's no recourse for eternal life. If you are not free, you are a slave, he says. So in other words, we can see that the covenant made with Israel and Mount Sinai where the law was given is a covenant of slavery, not of freedom. It's God's covenant to be sure. And all of God's covenants entered into with man is a covenant in some sense of grace. But this was not a covenant that led to life, but it was a covenant of slavery and not of freedom. And Paul wants us to understand that any way of coming up under that law is to come up under slavery. We see it very clearly as one thread in the Hagar story. But if you pull in that thread, you see it's woven all throughout Israel's history. And it's leading us to the same point. That law is slavery and there is no freedom. But notice what it says again in verse 25. But this Hagar, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Paul's point here is that this is the very same system that is still in place at his day in Jerusalem. That system of slavery, that, that thread that began in the garden that went through Adam and Eve to Cain to Abel to Noah to Abraham and Hagar all the way to Mount Sinai, it's still in effect and still operating in Jerusalem today where these opposers and agitators came from. They came from Jerusalem. So he says that they are the very same system which is still a place in Jerusalem, this capital of the Old Covenant, is a place of slavery. The people, the religion, in fact, the whole enterprise at Jerusalem, it's all enslaved. Here's what I want us to take away from this so far. The consequences of sin, think of the sin of Abraham and Hagar, are so far-reaching. We're talking thousands of years Hundreds of years to the, to, the, to the law, thousands of years later to the New Testament. Sin and the consequences of sin are so far-reaching. What you think has no consequence or effect today will grow and fester over time and eventually become something much more frightening and damaging than you could have ever imagined. Do not underestimate the corrosive effect of sin of your own sin, on your life, on your family, on the people around you. The world we live in is in part the way it is because of this corrosive element of sin. We live today in a world that we've inherited from our fathers and that we're affected by their sin. And we'll leave behind a world to our children and their children that are affected by our sin. Sin has far-reaching consequences both in our lives and in the world and we must not underestimate the corrosive effect of sin. It is like an acid that burns away at the very fabric of our reality. and It mars it and scars it and leaves it twisted and burned. Sin is ugly. There is no neutrality in the world. Your consequences of sin have very real effects on the lives of the people around you and of your own soul. Abraham's sin had a great effect in the enslaving of the entire Jewish population who put themselves under the law and saw in it their source of justification. What he thought was a way to circumvent or speed up God's timing and promises enslaved the whole race. 
how much more do the sins of the whole world end up enslaving us under condemnation? Your sins are included there. So friends, do not underestimate the power and the effect that sin has. It is an enemy. It has strength. And the only way to weaken it is to be aided by the Spirit in its death. To turn to the help that He provides to us in His Word, His Church, and by the Spirit itself, so that we might put an axe to the root of the poisonous tree. Hagar then goes on, he's contrast, she's contrasted with the other woman, of course, Sarah. There in verse 26. She is called the present Jerusalem, in slavery with her children, verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So we're not given the full details of her story like we are with Hagar, but the connection, of course, is made immediately. Sarah is the Jerusalem above, not the one below or the one on earth. Jerusalem above is free, that is, not in slavery. The question again is, what accounts for the difference between these two women? Both have children, sons, from the same man. Sounds like something out of West Side Story. One, though, is a slave, and therefore is the mother of slavery. And the other is free, and therefore the mother of freedom. What accounts for the difference between these two women who have sons with the same man? One who is a slave, one who is free. Again, Paul says the difference is, is promise. The difference is promise. It is not simply because Hagar was a slave and Sarah was a wife, but it was the promise given to Abraham and Sarah, not to Hagar. That's the fundamental difference between these two women and their sons. What is it to be promised by God? Promise is God's bond. It is His purpose to will and to work according to His word. It is the deed which will be accomplished. A promise of God is that testament of His authority and His power and His lordship that what He says will come to pass. It is not a promise in the typical sense of you and I may make a promise to one another, but it is a fact, it is a declaration, a statement, a decree, if you will, of what will come to pass. This is the promise that God makes to Abraham. So for Abraham and Sarah, and for any who wish to receive the blessings, the promise made to them is the key to the covenant which leads to life. Where the episode with Hagar stood opposed to the promise and leads to tragic slavery, Sarah's eventual conception of Isaac according to the promise opens wide the door to full blessing and freedom and eternal life. So the contrast is made. The promise makes the difference. Belief in the promise opens wide the door to freedom to enjoy the blessings promised to God where sin or the flesh condemns and leads to slavery. With one there is freedom, with the other there is only slavery. But how does all of this fit into the argument? Why does Paul bring this up? Why does he apply this allegory to the argument he's been making. Why not continue in making other textual arguments as he has before? Well, he applies the, the allegory in two ways. It's very simple. Look at verse 28 and verse 31. He says the same thing. You brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Or in verse 31, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So if you're a Christian united to Christ by faith, you're not of the slave woman, therefore in condemnation, but of the promise of the free woman. That's the big difference. 
Those justified by faith are children of the promise. Remember earlier, he said that justification and the blessing is tied to the promise, not to the law, which came 430 years later. So those who are justified by faith, again, are children of the promise. The second thing he does with this argument, he says that the law then needs to be cast out to where it truly belongs. That's what he says there in verse 29 and 30. Just at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who born, born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Cast it out. So the law must be cast out. The old covenant must be set aside in its proper place. Not dismissed, not thrown away, not ignored, but understood and approached rightly, read correctly for that which it is. Not what would provide an inheritance to the promise, because it doesn't, but which points us to where the inheritance of the promise is found. Two applications in light of this. First, use the law, that is the Bible and specifically the Old Covenant, use it as wisdom to lead you to Christ. Don't read it as a bunch of rules you no longer have to obey, although you should be grateful for the rules you no longer have to obey. But read it as wisdom to show you the character of God, the grace and the love and the kindness of God. Approach Deuteronomy and Leviticus and the history of Israel, of the narratives in Genesis, as a path towards wisdom to lead you to righteousness found only in Christ. Paul will tell Timothy that the law is good if it's used lawfully. What's the lawful use of the law? That it may lead you to Christ. Not to hope and trust in works or your own righteousness. Use the law as wisdom and lead it to Christ. The second application here then is that to notice the language and the concepts actually that have been permeated through the allegory here. That's the concept of motherhood. That these mothers gave birth to these sons. Hagar represents not just the natural Jerusalem on earth, not just the slavery of the law, but Hagar actually holds up a mirror to ourselves. We are all born into sin. You're getting this twice if you were in the Sunday school. You were born into sin. You were born into slavery, born into condemnation and damnation. What does David say in Psalm 51, verse 5? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David had a very real mother, but it could equally have been said that Hagar was his mother. Eve was his mother. What does Job say? Job 14, verse 1. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. That's so true if you have children. Few of days and full of trouble. And the Bible goes on and on about the fickleness of the human heart the sin wrapped up in the corruption, wrapped up in the human condition. So we are enslaved, not simply by the law, but by our corrupt nature as sinners. Friends, know that you are not a sinner because you sin, but you sin because you are a sinner. Hagar is as much our spiritual mother as Eve is in the fact that we walk in the same tradition as corruption. But where does all of this lead to? Verse 1 of chapter 5. If in Christ you are not a ch children of slave, but of the free woman, 
For Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We are free in Christ. How? Because he takes on the condemnation that we earned, that we deserve. Our corruption, which condemns us to God's wrath, was poured out on Christ on his cross. As he bears the sin of all those for whom he would die, your sin and mine, we are by faith forgiven of those sins, fully atoned and walk in righteousness, not of our own, but given to us by Christ. That's how we gain freedom. If we are all born into slavery, if we are all under the same condition of Hagar and Ishmael and the children there of Israel who are under the law, even as Gentiles who know nothing of the law, if we're condemned by our own slavery and corruption of sin, how can we be set free? Christ, who knew no sin, becomes sin for us. He suffers, and His death atones for our sin. He takes on the wrath, the condemnation, the judgment of God against our sin, so that we may not face that condemnation and wrath. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, those who have been justified by faith in Christ now have peace with God through Christ. Freedom is the freedom to have peace and not condemnation. The freedom to be called a friend or a child of God and not an enemy. We are free. In Christ, we are free to stand firm against slavery, it says there. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We are free to put our foot down at the foot of the cross and say, I will not enter into slavery. We are free to enjoy the blessings of eternal life, to inherit all of the blessings and the goodness that it comes with being adopted into God's family. And ultimately, we are free to walk into that freedom and in the midst of that freedom that we may love and serve one another. The rest of Galatians will help us see what that freedom looks like in our lives as we apply it and walk by faith to serve and care for each other, to carry each other's burdens, to bear the fruit of the spirit of love. We are free. The question then before us is, friends, do you know where freedom is found? If indeed it is in Christ, have you experienced that freedom? Are you free in Christ? And if you say yes to this, how do you walk in that freedom? By going to God's word, seeing in it the wisdom which points you to Christ, who suffers for you on the cross, who has given you his righteousness that he earned in his earthly ministry. And walking faithfully in light of this, you give yourself to the love and service of other people for the glory of God alone. What we want to take away from this ultimately is that the Bible teaches us the way for freedom. If we read it rightly, we listen with ears to hear and with eyes to see, we will see very clearly the only path which leads to righteousness and freedom is Christ. All else will lead us to slavery. So my hope for you is that you will see where you've fallen back into slavery by turning away from Christ or indeed to step on the path of righteousness where Christ leads you for the very first time and experience the freedom in Christ to enjoy the blessing of the promise inheritance to his people. Let me pray for a moment and then we'll take a few Q&A. Father, thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. Help us to celebrate and rejoice in this freedom that you are so gracious to us who have been born into sin and slavery and corruption and yet saw fit 
from before the world was formed to make a way for our freedom in your Son, Jesus. Though we can't explain or understand or give an account for it, it is your love to us, kindness for us in Christ, which grants us our freedom. We are no longer slaves, but children and heirs of the promise. We thank you, Lord. We give thanks to you as always in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. My great Redeemer's praise The glories of my God and King The triumphs of His grace And He breaks the power of canceled sin And He sets a prisoner free his blood can make the foulest clean, His blood availed for.